Let's pray, let's go. Oh Lord, send angels to protect us and guide us. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, welcome back. It's nice that you like each other so much. That's a good, that's a good thing. So by mid-September, things sort of get back to normal. Uh, it's very, very good to see you and good to be back. As always, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what you need or what we would need as a congregation. That sets the agenda really for what we do for the year. I spent um, probably a month this summer reading a year, 10 years worth of lectures uh, that I've given here at different times and Bible studies and stuff, trying to figure out you know, just what's the thing uh, that would be most helpful. But then also, we come from this very interesting time of the last few years, uh, which was frankly hard on all of us, and I understand that. And now one of the enjoyable things about this morning is you show no trace of it. But still, uh, I want to think about the church in the context of where we've been and in the challenges that are before us. And the great mystery for me, especially coming out of the last couple of years, is folks who didn't come back to church. So there are many places, large churches, popular churches, where perhaps only half of the people have returned, which is, of course, a great mystery to me if we really understand what happens when we gather. So there are always people who put their name on a page and then never show up, but they have us in case they need a baptism or a burial. It's part of the way the game is played. And then there are always people who are, for one reason or another, irregular. You know, you might see them once a month. And we have to be careful about judgment there because people's lives are difficult and everybody faces different challenges and we never quite know uh, what's up in somebody else's life. Oswald Chambers, there's one fact in everybody else's life that you don't know. But most mysterious to me has been people who pre-COVID, pre-elections, pre-troubles, pre-everybody being crazy, uh, were people who are regularly in church and that have not returned. This is the greatest mystery to me. And so I will say, you know, out loud, I know some of you listen online, even though in my head I think that nobody listens to this. But if you listen online but don't come to St. John anymore, I completely don't understand you. And yet, you know, I'm not in, I'm not in, I don't take that as, a, as, a, as necessarily a mark of judgment. It's that I actually don't understand. Because as the first line of this whole thing says, the answer to almost any question in all of life is go to church. And so I'm trying to sort out, you know, where life will go from here for you and for me. And uh, what the next thing is and how to, how to prepare. Now, you know, the world has gone mad. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But another very interesting fact is how Christians have been diminished. And so you've probably seen the polls about how, you know, another decade or so, Christians will be a minority in the United States and how people don't affiliate and there's nuns and people don't believe, couldn't believe, you know, uh, all of that put together. And, uh, you know, you can see that in some sense in the way that America's become a less and less virtuous place. And there's no even common agreement on what is virtue or what is good anymore. And so uh, what's happened is at just the point where we need it most, we've lost our ability to offer 
the best answers to the most critical questions in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And why am I here? Where am I going? Right, these questions that are unbelievably important, if life has any meaning at all, are questions that are almost no longer engaged. And Christians, in some sense, are culpable in this, especially with our great political interest and our great interest in political power. And it is for this reason. God does not demand of us human morality. God demands of us divine perfection. So God doesn't demand of us human perfection. God demands of us divine perfection, which is an extraordinarily high bar and, of course, uh, impossible for us. And the church always goes wrong when it lets the world set its agenda. The church sets the agenda for the world, whether they listen or not. The church sets the agenda for the world. The world does not set the agenda for the church. And so what we need to do is figure out what it is that God would ask of us and then rejoice that this is precisely the thing that God gives to us. And so your experience this morning, if you were at the earlier service, was an, was an experience of God blessing you with divine perfection, of saying everything that's past is forgiven and everything in the future is holy and here we go together. Now that's a longer way of saying the very first thing that has been written here, you know, a quote stolen from Dr. Just, the answer to almost any question is to go to church. And then, of course, you see, then this is my great mystery of how do people, how have we missed this? Now you're here, but what I want to say to you is the great encouragement is, you know, the third commandment says once a week, you know, you barely will last six days, maybe seven. Right? So how do, we, how do we ever get this notion? You heard it in the Old Testament reading for today. How soon will the new moon be over so we can go back to our normal lives? What a press it is to rest on the Sabbath in the holiness of God. Because we have businesses to run and bills to pay and people to cheat and folks to oppress, right? Let's get busy. And the weekend is so long if we take a Sabbath. We miss so much, we say. So this whole notion of going to church, of course, is a much broader notion of going into the holiness of God and then coming out the other side and realizing, come what may, I'm in God's hands. And so, you know, that is really where you want to be going, where I want to be going, where St. John needs to be going. And also, it is the way that we need to reclaim, and again, if you're listening to this and you haven't been to St. John in two years and you're a member, I'll see you next Sunday. Because you cannot get what Jesus is giving outside the church. 
And I always have some guy in a new members class who says to me, ah, this is okay for my wife, but I feel closest to God when I play early golf on Sunday morning. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, first, you're, you, you can't hit three of 18 fairways. And two, you know, what are, you, are, are you some kind of animist? You know, I'm as big on beauty as anybody else, but that's just nonsense. And so the church, you know, go to church. This is the first bit means physically, bodily, incarnationally, in person, locatedly, orbitally, communally, rhythmically, ritually. We've done all of these things in different years, in different ways. The rhythm of the Christian life, orbiting Christ, the physical, located, orthodox, confessional presence of Jesus in the water and in the bread and in the wine and in the air because after all, sound is just touch at a distance. So go to church actually means you're in the pew with sinners and angels. That's what it means. And it doesn't mean anything less. And of course people travel. Of course you get places where there's not a church. Of course you get ill. Of course, of course, of course. Those are the exceptions, not the habit, right? The word of God is, remember the Sabbath day, right? And to keep it holy, we should fear, love, and trust God that we should, you have it here, right? Fear, love, and trust God that we should not despise preaching in his word, but we should hold it holy and gladly hear and learn it. So uh, this is not a new thing, of course. It's everywhere. And of course, we've learned it in different ways. We've learned it through tithing. We've learned it through fasting. We've learned it through pilgrimage. And this is critical. It's everywhere uh, in the scriptures. The Old Testament, for example, the notion of going up to Jerusalem, that you would appear there once a year if you were able, uh, that there are songs to be sung as you go. And so I give you, you know, Psalm 84, which is famous, but I want to try to just observe for you all the things that are in here. So these are the things that are present in the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place? Right off the bat, beauty. And so whatever happens this morning must be beautiful. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So what's there? Beauty joy, and life. Even the sparrow finds a home. And so you're at home when you're here. This is Jesus' house. And then even Pastor Kendall's sermon this morning about how mercy makes a house, right? Even the sparrow finds a home. Even the swallow has a nest at your altars, right? Not on the internet, or in the metaverse, or even by the radio, right? It's very difficult to get the Eucharist over the radio, right? At your altars, you're meant to be at the altar, located there. Blessed are those who actually dwell, who incarnate, who are fleshly, who are with each other. And I know you can look to your right and look to your left, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that the person next, sitting next to you stinks. I mean, I get it, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, 
That is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. You're loving people who are horrible, right? But so we, you know, you're meant here to be physically. It's too sterile when you're home alone, right? Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Pilgrimage, right? You drove here this morning or you walked here this morning. This is how it works. If you want beauty, if you want joy, if you want life, if you want the altar, if you want what's offered here, you make a pilgrimage, you make a commitment, you become a Christian, you move toward the house of God. Why? They go from strength to strength. In a nation that is now weak and is shown to be weak by its meanness, by its inability, uh, you know, not to take offense and not to give offense. That's a mark of weakness. It's like being an eighth grade boy, right? They're all full of bluster and I can make them cry in 10 seconds. <laughs> Bart Simpson, make a teenager depressed is like shooting fish in a barrel. It's easy. <laughs> they go from strength to strength as each one appears before God, face to face, you appear before God. You know, in the, it's not always, they're out there somewhere, God is out there somewhere, where's God, I don't know where, no, no, he's face to face. And then the great New Testament saying, in Jesus we see the face of God. Right? Oh Lord, hear my prayer, verse nine, be my shield. Look on the face of the anointed. Come to me face to face as my father, as my friend. For a day in your course is better than a thousand years everywhere else. It's better here than there. So if you're there, you should be here. For the Lord is a sun and a shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing shall be withheld from those who walk justly. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you want light, if you want protection, if you want favor, if you want honor, if you want good, if you want gifts, if you want blessing, this is the place for you. You can get it nowhere else. You can get it nowhere else because this is where Jesus lives. And he doesn't live here in the same way that he lives everywhere else. Now, if you need to know the truth of that, turn the page to point number two, because you know, going to church isn't obvious anymore. Almost nobody goes to church. If you go to church, people think you're startlingly strange. But in the old days, uh, when, church, when the church had seven sacraments, so, and if you're hyper-Lutheran, just kind of relax right here because, <laughs> I will show you the place in the confessions where it says, you can have as many sacraments as you want, it just depends how you name them. So the reason Lutherans have two or sometimes three, depending on how they're numbered, is because Lutherans say, um, it's a word of Jesus that also forgives sins. So you know, but should marriage be a sacrament? It might be better if we thought that way. But in any case, the original notion of seven sacraments was that Jesus was present to you at any time. You're born, and so you get baptized, right? And then uh, you're, you're, um, you're growing up fast, and so we give you First Communion because you know, we'd like you to know Jesus before you know your drug dealer or find Pornhub, right? And then you, know, you start to go through puberty, and we say, well, there's a lot to learn. You should come see Pastor Nelson, right? Confirmation. And then you say, what will I do with my life? And some people will get married, and so you come and are blessed into that, and some people will say, 
I think I might be a priest or a nun or a, take a vocation in the church, right? So holy orders. And then you find out that as you go, um, you sin. And the smarter you are, the more sins you can number. And so there's absolution for that. And you're going to die someday. And when you die, we don't want you to die in those sins. So just to be sure, Pastor Nelson will come to you. And with the same oil he anointed you with at the font, he will anoint you towards your death at last rites. Because, you know, your eyes go bad and your ears go bad and smell goes last. So you can smell the presence of Jesus. Jesus is here with me. He just baptized me. And Jesus is here with me. This next thing, death, should be interesting. Now, the problem is, is that we don't... Um, think very clearly anymore. And we don't see very well, and we don't love well, we don't choose well. And of course, that's not just a function of our society, it's because that's what sin does to us. It clouds our vision, it twists up our brains, and it plugs our ears. And so, uh, what we need is someone who will, who will show us the way. First, who will remind us that this actually matters. One of the great deceptions of our world now is that it doesn't matter. That it all just gets sort of sorted out. Either it turns to ash and we're all a great memory and that's the way it goes, or God loves everybody and so, you know, everybody will be there and it'll just be fine. Well, you know, one question about that is how that violates what it is to be a human being whose primary or one of, one of the primary assets is to have free will. So hell is when you get your way forever, and heaven is when God gets his way forever, right? And so you hear in the Didache, there are two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death. And there's a difference between these two ways. The, the way of life is that first you love God, and then while you're at it, you love your neighbor. You bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you, right? Well, what reward is there if you love those who love you? But you also love those who hate you, and you abstain from worldly lust. And if somebody strikes your right cheek, you turn the other. So that, and see, here it is. They understand it here. So that you shall be perfect. Not just good, not just moral, not just popular. That you shall be divinely perfect. Leviticus, be ye holy as I am holy. Or Paul in the New Testament, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. And glorify is code word for the holiness of heaven enacted, arriving incarnate on earth. Glory is holiness revealed. So go the extra mile and give your cloak away. Church matters, because if you want to learn to love and bless and pray and fast and abstain and turn the other cheek and be perfect in love, you're not going to learn that anywhere else, because that is not what the world is teaching. And you're not going to do that anywhere else. And if you don't practice these things as a habit, when the chips are down, you won't be able to produce them. The entire world is built on self-interest. Can't the new moon be over so I can get back to pleasing myself? 
the entire church is built on God's interest. God who is holy and asks you to be holy too. Now, you know that Jesus himself went to church. And so under point three, I give you the famous story that you know, but I wanted you to read it with a little bit of a twist, right? So his parents went to Jerusalem every year. There you go. Wherever you lived, wherever you were a good Jew, you went to Jerusalem every year if you could. So his parents, now you should just hear this in the way of St. John, had discipline, had a rhythm, had a custom, had a liturgy. Why do we do the same thing every week? So that you will get a discipline, you will get a custom, you will get a habitus, right? You will show discipline. They went every year to Jerusalem according to their custom. When the feast was over, they thought he was with his cousins, his friends, and they left town in a clump and suddenly he wasn't there. 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, physically present in the temple, not by the side of the road meditating, not out in the desert, not with his friends. They found him in the temple physically, going to Bible study, listening and asking, asking and listening, asking and answering, listening and asking and listening. And they found him in the temple at Bible study. And the people who heard him were amazed and his parents were astonished and his mother said, why? And Jesus said, verse 49, because I'm home, come home, go home. Why were you looking for me somewhere else? Why were you looking for me at all? Why are you so nervous? Why don't you understand? Didn't you know I must be physically, locatedly, rhythmically, custom, um, customarily in my father's house? And they didn't understand. Just like, you know, people who have never come back to church don't understand. Just like people who have taken the struggles of the last few years to give up on God and the church, they don't understand. They've completely capitulated to something that's even less than human morality. Because frankly, it's not going that well. And his mother treasured up all these things, the very same thing we said about that baby who was baptized today. Make disciples baptizing and teaching them to treasure up everything that I've left behind. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. And if you go to church, you'll increase in wisdom and stature you'll get smarter, right? Now here you think, I'm gonna give you a story about how this works. Um, I've come to love, of all the things you know, I don't know, I've come to love St. Bernard of Clairvaux. The pillars in the sanctuary are sketched from a monastery near Clairvaux that I bumbled into when we were in Tizay. So he's a dear human being. He got famous in his own right. And you know, I came across this um, from a friend a few months ago, and I thought about you, right? So this is how the church should work. If you're physically, incarnationally present in the way of mercy. This, uh, just, so just, just listen to the story. This is how the church should work. 
Among those who were troubled with evil spirits was an old woman of Milan. Now Milan has a famous cathedral. You can still go there. If you go downstairs, you can see the font where Ambrose baptized Augustine. That alone is worth the price of a ticket to Italy. So now, um, let's see, this would be, you know, 400s, going to the late 300s, this is like 12, 1100-ish, so you know, you're five, six, seven hundred years later, in the same place, Bernard is, uh, is visiting. Now watch this. There was an old woman of Milan who was, and this is your part, dragged by many hands as far as the church of St. Ambrose in Bernard's wake. So Bernard's there, and they say, we've got this old woman, and she needs our help. They drag her to church, okay? Get more liability insurance. <laughs> Over the years that the devil had been ensconced within her, the devil had virtually choked this once honored matron. So she was a Christian who becomes possessed by the devil, whom people still care about. And then isn't this an interesting description? So she could neither, look, this is us, see or hear or speak. And so you remember when Jesus heals the man by spitting in his ears and on his tongue and opening his eyes. Now you can see, now you can hear, now you can speak. So what the devil, we, we don't think very well. Has it occurred to anybody in America, has it occurred to people who are staying home from church that the reason for this might be demonic? Not in some sort of crazy way like this where her tongue looks like an elephant's trunk, but in a way that, you know, C.S. Lewis says, a man woke up one day dead and he was startled to find out that he was in hell. It, things have been going so well for him. What with her grinding her teeth and protruding tongue like an elephant's trunk, she seemed, and get this, America, she seemed more like a monster than a woman. I turn on the news and I look at people, I look at where I live and I say to myself, we're savages. We're monsters. Just think about the abortion debate. Pope Francis, brilliant little throwaway this week where he said, killing is of the beasts. Stop the killing. She's grinding her teeth and protruding her tongue like an elephant's trunk. She seemed more a monster than a woman. Her filthy-faced, fetid breath and hideous expression were plainly enough off-scourings of the evil lurking within. So evil is anti-beautiful, anti-holy, anti-good, anti-wonderful, right? Just a common, it's a common demonic manifestation, bad smells, ugly things. Bernard, knew at first sight that the devil would not be easily ousted from the dwelling he'd occupied for so long. So now you, right? Turning to face the huge congregation, he bade them to pray with their whole attention. So I just, just a little pause here. You think you come to church for you? You're out of your minds. You come to church for me and I come to church for you. You come to church for that stinky person to your right and to your left, the one with the bad breath and the tongue that sticks out like an elephant. 
You come to the church for the monsters around you. And you don't have the wherewithal or the gifts to do this as you sit at home and listen to it on the internet or on the radio. You just do, you're not that good. There have been very few people in the history of the church, St. Anthony perhaps in the desert, St. Francis maybe, St. Anthony of Padua perhaps. There have been very few people in the history of the church who could go it alone. John the Baptist? Okay, but not you and not me unless you've been hiding something all these years. Turning to face the congregation, he bade them to pray with their whole attention. He told the clerics and the monks who were with him at the altar to bring the woman forward and keep her there. Now this is where it gets really great. Hey, get this. Some got hurt in the process. You know the stinky people sitting to your right and your left? They're going to hurt you. And it's going to be painful for you to help them out of their evil. Whether this is your kids or your parents or your family or the people that you hate, they're going to hurt you. Some got hurt in the process, for she struggled with the devil's own strength and even succeeded in kicking Bernard, the abbot, who treated this impertinence on the devil's part with quiet, that's good, doesn't react, and contempt. Always treat the devil with contempt. The devil is powered by pride, and what he hates most is when you show contempt for him. What he wants most is your fear. What he wants most is your attention. What he hates most is when you turn your back to him, or you like, that was a nothing. Tranquilly, humbly, with no trace of anger, he asks God's help. And so we should say to ourselves, even as we think about this, whether you want to think about the church or the world or you or me, the way of thinking about it is tranquilly, humbly, with no trace of anger, he asks God's help in the riddance. And then what did he do? He went to church. He proceeded with the mass. But as often as he blessed the host, so now the mass is beginning, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. So these prayers that are in advance of the verb are right. As often as he blessed the host, he turned toward the woman and made a sweeping sign of the cross. And at the sign of the cross, the devil is convulsed. God's champion dealt his adversary a mighty blow. And so this is why you should be making the sign of the cross in the morning and in the night, and before you receive the Holy Supper, perhaps, and as you begin your prayers, and kind of any time, also if you face a pitcher who throws 99 miles an hour, you know. <laughs> That's why people do it. So, each time a fierce outburst made it clear that the thrust had gone home. So, evil gets worse before it gets better, right? And that's what we're hoping for. Things have gotten bad, but now though, we'll take the opportunity to repent and have things get better. It, it got worse, now it'll get better. When the consecration prayer had been said, Bernard took stronger measures against his foe. So this is the strongest thing he can do. What's the strongest thing you can do against the devil? Placing the sacred body of the Lord on the paten. The paten is the little plate, right, that the host is on and holding it above the woman's head. So he brings the physical presence of Jesus in the bread. He brings the body 
and he holds it just above her head. So how do you get rid of the devil? You bring Jesus close, his body and his blood. You go to the Eucharist. He addressed him in these terms. Here is your judge, foul spirit. Here is the highest power that is. Resist if you can. You can't get this at home. You can't get it over the internet. It's not in the metaverse, and you don't hear it on the radio. The Eucharist is the center of life. If you're not in church, you don't get the Eucharist. If you don't get the Eucharist, you do not have the full manifestation of Christ. It's as simple as that. Here is he who, before suffering for our salvation, said, now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. This body. And so now, here's the thing. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a sign. The church has always believed this. This is the body, that host. That's why we hold it up. That's why we ring bells. That's why we greet it with incense, a triple-double to a living thing. Anything with an incense that gets a triple-double. One, two, one, two. So this morning, the altar and you in the congregation and the crucifix and the bread and the wine, once they were consecrated to be the body and blood, got a triple-double. Watch next time you go to church. One, two, three. It is the mark of something that is alive. You sense things differently when they're not alive. But the altar is alive and the cross is alive. You are alive and I am alive, but most alive of all is Jesus the Christ. The body formed from the virgin's flesh, stretched out on the tree of the cross, laid low in the grave, the body that rose from the dead, which is the greatest defeat of Satan. The body that rose from the dead and ascended into heaven before the disciples' eyes. In this terrible power of his majesty, his holiness, I command you, evil spirit, to leave the servant, and I forbid you to ever come near her again. And the spirit was forced from the woman willy-nilly. It tormented her and it was fierce, but the time was short. And then what? The abbot returned to the altar, and after the fraction, so he's breaking the bread to give it to people, right? After the fraction of the blessed host, he gave the kiss of peace to a priest that the blessing might be poured out of the people. So this is exactly what we do. So at the first service, Pastor Nelson communes himself. Now he's holy. Then he communes the people at the altar. He makes us holy. And then they bring the body and blood to you and make you holy. That's how the peace works. It goes out from Jesus at the altar, through the pastor, through the servers, into the community. And now we're one holy people. Not one moral people. Not one human people. Not one people who are better than we were when we came in. We are one holy people, holy Catholic apostolic church, as we say in the creed. Gave the kiss of peace and peace and wholeness returned on an instant to the woman. When she had come to her senses, what, she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't talk. Now she can see, hear, and talk. When she came to her senses and recovered her reason, her tongue returned to its place and the first thing she does is give thanks to God. And for you who have been around for a while, this is Eucharistia, right? From the Eucharist, Eucharistia. From the gift, we give praise and thanks. Throwing herself at the feet of the man who saved her. And then you again, a great shout went up from the church as young and old rejoiced in the Lord, 
amid the sound of gongs, and the whole city held God's servant in veneration. If I may be permitted the expression, they yearned after Bernard with love. We could just sort of stop and take the rest of the year off. Everything you need to know is right there. There is evil in the world and it's conquered by the body of Christ. It is washed clean with the blood of Christ. And it makes us new persons who come together as one body. And in that we are holy and we are meant to go out into the world. One of the great problems of the church is that it's been defined as fire insurance. Right? And here's another great reason you can stay home because I got baptized and you know, I, you know, I, I go once in a while on Christmas Easter, it's all gonna work out. One of the most interesting things always to me is we have people every week who send us prayer requests and ask us to pray, but they don't come to church. I always think to myself, so you want me to pray for your relative or friend who's dying, but you're not gonna come to church and pray yourself. And I thank God that he works that out because I would be horrible at working that out. Because I would think to myself, if it's not important enough for you to come to church and pray for them, what, do you think I'm, I have extra prayer time or I'm, there's leverage? What, what's going on exactly? If you don't think it's important enough to show up and pray, why would I think it's important enough or God thinks, what, what? except for mercy, of course. So, um, you can't get this anywhere else. Right? Now, huh, just so you know, this was twice as long uh, when I wrote it up by the time I got to the end Friday. I cut it in half and then I laid awake last night thinking to myself, I wouldn't have enough to talk about. So, <clears throat> this can happen. So you turn the page and what does Jesus say, right? I've come that you may have life, Zoe. I've come that you would have life and you would have it abundantly fully. This beautiful life that, where everything is bundled up and it comes as a gift and it brings joy. I've come that you'd have life and that you would have it beyond your imagination. And this is part of the problem for us, that we no longer have the imagination for what glory and goodness is. You know, some of you know I was away and I um, spend all my time in churches. And I was overwhelmed by, as you walk in, you think to yourself, these people love Jesus. How did you, how did you do this? I saw St. Anne's toes. I didn't know I would meet her. She was early in the church, under the persecution. They gouged, gouged out her eyes, tortured her, killed her. It was very interesting. She had a silver plate on her face. Um, I'm sure to show the beauty that she was. And then it was fully vested. But, from about her ankles down, there were her toes, um, sort of waiting for the resurrection. Or there was another place we saw a very early saint, um, skeletal, but his bones tied together and reconstructed over the centuries with gold thread and uh, emeralds and diamonds and rubies. And he, he lies under the altar, sort of waiting for the next good thing. And you say, the way they must have loved him. And then, of course, you know, we think we can exist in pole barns or we think that, you know, um, my testimony is going to make the day or we think that we can, you know, stay at home and it's all going to be okay. You, you sort of go, you know, this is part of knowing history, knowing art, knowing beauty, knowing love, 
knowing the past, knowing the persecutions, knowing what people endured. You, you say to yourself, what is wrong with us, right? And then we wonder why things don't work out. It's remarkable stuff. Jesus comes and says instead, I've come that you'd have life and that you'd have it in a way that would exceed your expectation. So the church is the place that bestows joy, right? These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We have to go, but I just want you to, just for fun, just turn the page to our old friends from Sebasti, right? So we were, I was going to have you read this a little bit, but you can take it home and read it. But, you know, this is one of the most interesting early stories in the church. So it's a time of the persecutions are still happening, if sporadically. The empire is becoming Christian, but not wholly so. Christians are still in danger. Um, they're meant to make sacrifices to the emperor and to the gods, and if they don't, they're considered bad luck or worse. So these 40 soldiers who are Christians who've converted um, won't sacrifice to the idols. So in the middle of a cold winter, they're put out naked on a lake, and then their comrades made fires around the outside of the lake and said, if you'd only sacrifice, if you'd only give up your God, you could come be warm with us and live. You should be able to hear the echo of this in our own society. If you'd only give all this up, you could be like us and live. And if you look at that icon, if you read it, there are three really interesting things happening. One is that Jesus is above with his arms outstretched. The classic way of blessing or embrace or care. And I don't know if you notice on the left, there are two things happening. There's one guy in the door making a run for it. He's running away. He's, he, there are 40 of them, and number 40 is leaving. 40, as you know, is a holy number. 40 years, 40 days, Noah's Ark, Lent, Jesus in the wilderness. So there are 40 of them, and you're meant to think holiness. And the one guy in the doorway is capitulating. He's giving up the faith. He's staying home. He's running away. But there's another guy you can see who's taking off his clothes to come stand. He's the new disciple. He completes the 40. And he said it was because he saw this light that had surrounded the soldiers on the ice. And he wanted that more than he wanted the light and the warmth of the fires. They froze to death in the morning. They burned them to ash. But as you know, it takes a very hot fire to completely consume a body. What was left of them was tossed into a river. But of course, villains are always sloppy. And so there were relics left, bones, fragments, pieces of clothes. And these were distributed all around to Christians to give them strength, to remind them that to endure. And Basil of Caesarea is already preaching about them 50 or 60 years on. They already are at the sainthood point 50 or 60 years on. It's a famous story. And you know, the, the, the story always goes like this. If we could be like them, if we could be like them, our lives would matter. So that's where we should go next time. 
but there's so much more to say. Um, anyway, let's pray. We should go to the Mass. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. See you at the altar. See you next week.